So, God uses women all the time in scriptures. So let me give you um, some examples. In Luke 8, it says, uh, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called it Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who were provided for them of their means. So it shows that men, right here it's saying that many women were there serving with Jesus. They were in ministry with Jesus. They were being used in mighty ways when they were following Jesus. So we have the 12 disciples here, man. But there were many women who were serving with Christ and had important roles. Um, in Acts 18, this is after Jesus' ascension to heaven and the church is getting started, we see Aquila and Priscilla, and they were this great husband and wife team who discipled um, even Apollos together. They discipled these men of God together. They trained up teachers together. They were a great husband and wife team, which I think is, is really awesome. Um, Romans 16, uh, verse 1, it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. The word is, is like a deacon of the church. So she had a leadership role in the church. Um, as Centuria, and uh, sorry, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron um, of many and of myself as well. So he's saying, give this woman who is served and led so well respect and, and honor and help her in whatever she needs. Get a high view of this of this female leader. Um, not to mention, okay, the first four witnesses of the resurrected Lord were women. The first four witnesses of Jesus Christ risen from the dead were women. And it's really interesting because in that society at that time, a woman was not allowed to be a witness in court because her, her witness didn't count. And Jesus entrusts the witness of four women first. That's pretty, that's pretty big. And so you have to know that God has a high view of women. He created them, and they were also created in God's image just like man. It says so in Genesis 1 that both were created in, in the image of God. Both man and woman, Genesis 1, uh, 1 and 2 say that. Um, and then, of course, Mary was entrusted to raise Jesus. She was entrusted, whether or not Joseph stayed stuck or not, she was entrusted to raise Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. So God uses women. God loves women. And God has a very high view of women. Okay? So that being said, let's read our text. Okay? <laughs> We're going to start... Um, our text today was 9 through 15, and we had covered verse 8 already, but I want to go ahead and jump back to verse 8. I think, Tyler, you have that one, right? Verse 8? Yep. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control. So verse 8 there, he says that he wants the men to raise their whole, in holy hands, and but that they should not... Um, be disputing in anger, right? So apparently he's saying the men struggle with anger and arguing within the church. And so I want to clarify something. This entire text here is talking about um, the church gathering. This isn't um, applying to all other areas of the world or every other scenario you find a woman. This is talking about in the church gathering, okay? And in church leadership. So, 
And so that'll be important in a few minutes. I'll clarify why that's important. So it says, likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. With good works, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was born first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Do you guys see why I needed some help? <laughs> okay. So there are five things in the script um, text here that I want to address. I already addressed man's struggle with anger and disputing in church. I, I know that to be true. I've been in many, many theological days. Never with a girl. Because <laughs> like, most of the time you're like, this is what I think, and they're, they're like, fine if you disagree. Or like, whatever. But guys, like, they want to like, convert you to whatever specific doctrine they have, but this is their favorite, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of anger disputing most of the time from guys. So let's just clarify that. That's a struggle of man. Uh, let's talk about women now. There are five things that he talks about women here. Uh, women's modesty, uh, that they would learn as a mission, uh, teaching authority, Eve's deception, and the childbearing really confusing part again. <laughs> okay, so we're going to tackle each one of these one at a time. All right? And like I said, don't walk out yet. <laughs> right? Don't walk out yet. Um, verse 9 says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Okay, so the word he says here for dress is castole, uh, um, which refers to demeanor as well as the clothing, which is very interesting. So it's a general um, idea of how you appear. So he wants women to appear modest in the general sense of how they act and how they dress and all of these things. Now, again, he is talking about the church gathering, right? And I would say this to you. Our culture, secular and not, we have like unspoken dress codes in society, don't we? Right? You wouldn't show up to a, a, a business board meeting in a bathing suit. Right? It's inappropriate. And that has nothing to do with scripture. That is just culturally in, inappropriate or un, not appropriate. So he's talking here about the gathering of the church, not that women can't wear nice things and dress up or whatever at all, all places. Now, I also want to clarify. Um, so a lot of guys are like, women have to shut up in church and they can't ever say anything. Let their wife wear a gold ring and braided hair, right? So, you have, so like they're not allowing any context to work its way in except for the golden hair part, you know, the golden hair. Uh, golden ring, golden rings, and, and, and braided hair. And so we have to understand there was some cultural context to this. My wife, she doesn't braid her hair, but she does wear a, a gold ring. A blonde's kind of like a braid, right? That's not really. Yes. Um, she doesn't have pearls, though. But. So he's partially referencing a thing they did called plating of the hair, which could take five or six hours. And it was how the women dressed when they went to the Colosseum. Um, so he's addressing something pretty specific, and apparently in the churches in Ephesus, some of the women were treating the church gathering like a fashion show, which he's saying is inappropriate for the gathering uh, 
think it's inappropriate at all times. If you're going to the Coliseum, you want to dress up and go to a fashion show, that's fine. He's saying, look, let's let church be church, right? And when you come in and treat church like a fashion show, you're drawing the attention away from God and you're drawing it to yourself. Whether you're doing that um, on purpose or not, that's kind of what happens. And so I believe, you know, that you should actually dress somewhat decent for church. You're, you're coming to um, a meeting and I believe that you should treat it like you're going out or something. I, I personally dress, I, like, I wear nicer shirts than I maybe do, uh, you know, when I'm at home or, or something like that. I, I dress slightly nicer. I don't wear a suit. And that's my personal opinion. Um, but it doesn't really matter what you wear here. But the point that Paul is making is that you shouldn't try to be drawing so much attention to yourself with the way you have to dress modestly. And I think that if you wore certain things, um, even to a secular event where it would be inappropriate, people kind of look at you weird, right? Um, and so this is, I think, culturally understand, understood today. It's just what type of clothing and things have changed, right? So it isn't saying that gold rings or red hair is, is a sin. It's saying dress appropriately for the gathering. Does that make sense? Okay. What he wants from women, instead of trying to bring all of this attention to themselves, is uh, in verse 10 it says, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. He's like, hey, if you want to bring attention to yourself, if you want to appear a certain way, be um, known for your godliness and good works. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, it says, Do not labor adorning the external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a Gentile and quiet spirit. Of a gentle, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> of a gentle and quiet spirit. God's sight is very precious. You know what's funny about this is, you know, a woman could read this and be offended, but like, God is saying that it's the beauty on the inside that matters. And don't we say that? Like, isn't that an and everything? Like, why would you be offended at this? God's like, you're beautiful on the inside. You need to recognize that and go, how dare you say that, Lord? Like, that's kind of crazy. He's like, be beautiful on the inside. Let your character and your, your personality and your good works and your godliness be what you're known for, not your clothes. So it's not saying that clothes are so bad, but it's saying that shouldn't you be living for something more than that? Don't you want to be known for more than how you look? I want my wife to be, I want people to know how great she is, not how, you know, good, well, I want people to know she's good. <laughs> <laughs> Call my wife over. Because my wife is beautiful, but she is more importantly, she's very beautiful on the inside. Okay? Okay. Are we clear on modesty? Does this, does this make sense? Anybody want to walk out yet? No? Interested. Interested. <laughs> right, so this next one is learning and submission. So they get progressively harder. <laughs> they get progressively harder to uh, address. First Timothy 2.11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Are we clear? Should we move on? <laughs> so today um, we have this battle in our cultural about, about our culture about men and women and the roles that 
play. And there is this trend where people are trying to say there is no difference between men and women in any way. If you recognize any sort of difference, you're sexist. Which to me is absurd. Um, men and women are different. Just look at them. Like they're different. Um, and some of their tendencies towards certain things are different. Men and women are different. That is not to say one or the other is better. They are just different. And it's natural and it's normal and almost everybody recognizes in the world that there's a trend today to try to say that there is no difference between men and women at all. And you know what? And we're like, well, that's a cultural thing, and since that's where our culture is shifting, the church needs to change with it. But let me tell you something. The Gnostic, which were um, really was the philosophy that kind of creeped into the church, they were saying some of the same exact things. They were saying there was absolutely no differences between men and women, and they were saying that 2,000 years ago. So the church has been battling the same um, philosophical viewpoints and cultural viewpoints thousand years. There is nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. You know, they think, I mean, this is a totally different topic we're not actually talking about today, but homosexuality was much more common then than it is now. And so when we were trying to say, well, culture has changed, so the church has to change. But that's not true. Some things in culture have changed, and there's certain contexts that we'll, we'll look at, but the sin and, and, and the viewpoints that we have today were there back then. They just maybe played out in different ways. They came to the surface in different ways. So, Paul is addressing here when he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, something specific to the churches in Ephesus that was going on. You will notice in the book of 1 Timothy, he's answering a lot of questions, but we don't know what the questions were, we just have his answers. So, um, I want to clarify something. In 1 Corinthians 11, it makes it clear that in the church gatherings, women are to pray and prophesy. Also, the Bible continually, uh, or I wouldn't say continually, but every time that the Bible tells us about the spiritual gifts, it never says they're only for men. Not a, there's not an asterisk next to any one of the spiritual gifts that says only for men. In fact, he tells us what the spiritual gifts are, and then he tells us all to use them in these church gatherings. So are women to be completely quiet when they come to church if some churches have taught in the past? No, that's not what he's saying here. Because he's already said women can pray, they can prophesy, and they can exercise all of the gifts in the church, just like men. There is no difference there. But many of the churches have implemented um, the splitting of the men and women in seating as they did in the synagogues. Because that was the background of many of these people. They refused to go into the synagogue. Women sat on one side, men sat on the other. Um, that just naturally made its way into the church. And so it was a cultural thing for them to sit on different sides. But what probably was going on was one of two things or meaning both. Women were often less educated, so some of the topics may have seemed confusing to them and maybe they started chatting among themselves which was causing disruption during this, this, the sermon. So they're off kind of talking about the week or whatever when the, the sermon is going on, when their teaching is supposed to be happening, and they're not submitting to the authority and to the teaching during that time. The other thing is, because um, we know that it says that they should ask their husbands and, and this and that, 
they may have been trying to ask their husband in the middle of service, hey, what's he talking about? Can you explain that? Like, we're talking about something. What's he talking about? What's going on here? Like, we're confused. And causing disruption. So he's addressing the disruption during kind of the service, during the teaching, saying that you need to learn and, and be submissive to the Word of God here and to the, those who are leading you and teaching you about the Word of God. Be submissive to that and learn quietly. So I, I believe you would say the same thing to men. It's just probably the men were because maybe the men at, during the time these topics were less confusing to them. They were more educated. Um, and so they... Um, maybe we're paying attention and doing a better job of that. Women may have been struggling with chatter or causing disruption and Paul's addressing that problem. This is not to say that women cannot exercise their gifts or be a part of the service and, and, and session. Obviously, we don't believe that because Melissa leads us in worship <laughs> every Sunday. So obviously, that's not what we, we think here. The next one. Women um, teaching in authority. 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So, there are a lot of, this is probably the biggest one, like the most debated one in, in church even today. And so, there's a number of arguments. One of them is that it says, Paul is saying, I do not permit. He's not saying God doesn't permit in any church ever. I don't permit going to teach or exercise authority. And I see the draw of that because it's easy. Like go, okay, so it's fine. Like, and, and so we can move on. But the problem is if you take every time the Bible says, I do not, and then the command afterwards, and you just remove that, you can start causing a lot of problems in Scripture. And so I don't think that's the right approach to take here because all Scripture is God-free and profitable. And so I don't believe that we can just ignore this verse because Paul's saying, I do not permit. Um, I think that we can just simply look at this text and understand it a bit better. Other people would well, Paul was a sexist bigot. <laughs> <laughs> or Paul was addressing the Jews, or he was like, giving in to the Jewish culture here. And so we need to just ignore it because he was really just giving in to the Jews here. Or he was giving in to his own Jewish background. Um, so... I believe, well, let's just clarify the, the one. She is to remain quiet. Again, this is during the teaching of doctrine or of the word. Again, the Bible says, Paul says himself, that when they pray and prophesy in these gatherings, they can use their gifts. Okay? So the quiet bit there is more about certain portions of, of the service or the times. Okay. As far as I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, I do not believe he is specifically addressing a woman coming up here and speaking in any form. I believe he is he's addressing a role within the church. And that's because right after this chapter, so this, we're at the end here of chapter 2, he goes on to chapter 3, which talks about the role of elders. And he uses these same terms of for teaching and exercising authority. I believe that we there was women who were trying to lead the entire church or take over the entire church. Um, and I believe that women can exercise their gifts given to them by the Holy Spirit in all contexts. In all contexts. So, like I said, I would have had, unless I was willing, had her come up here and help me teach the um, 
this gets really like touchy. Some of you are like, well, even the role thing I'm not okay with. Like there should be no difference there. And some of you are like, you would let your wife speak to the church. You can't let a wife you take this verse to say that a woman can never teach women in the room. She can only teach to children or to, to women's ministry. Um, and so we're kind of a little bit, we've got a bit of a contrast here. And in this, there's really three views. There's kind of the authoritarian view, which most churches today are rejecting. And it's not just that they believe that women um, can't serve in certain roles. Um, they really, by their language, really seem to view women as lesser spiritually. Um, so we, we are not authoritarian in that sense. Then there's the two more common ones, which are complementarian and egalitarian. Egalitarian say spiritually there's no difference between men and women whatsoever, and so women can serve in every role um, without any difference. And the complementarians say that men and women are equal, and they both um, have spiritual strengths and weaknesses, and they work together within the church, and they complement each other within the church. Does that make sense? So I believe a woman, a woman could teach um, to the congregation whether or not there are men in the room, but she's not to be in the role of the main teacher of the church or an elder of the church. Now, some of you are already like, okay, I disagree with that for sure. And I would remind you of a couple things. We're not done yet. Let's keep finish. Let's finish this text. And we're trying to understand the scripture that is before us. Um, and so... I understand the um, difficulty to wrap our minds around some of these things sometimes, but as we go through this, I think you'll see that God is, uh, he really wants the best for women here. So I, I would not have a woman pastor of a church or an elder of the church. I would have women who prophesy, teach, and exercise all of their gifts within the church. That's where we stand um, as a leadership in Austin Chapel. But I want to say something. Um, I am married, and my wife is very influential <laughs> in this church. And if you don't believe me, um, well, you should just should. Like, every one of her opinions matter a lot. And we have one elder in our church, and we are in the process of bringing on two other elders, and we're bringing on an assistant pastor. And you better believe that those women are going to have a huge influence in the church, or already do. And when you look at the role of an elder, which we're going to be looking at more in detail next week, it talks about the elders being able to manage their own household well. Um, and if they can't do that, how could they manage the household uh, of God? And I want to really use that to speculate a little bit. You guys are going to allow me to speculate a little bit? These, so this is this is Stephen's thoughts on Scripture. I'm not, you don't have to agree with me here, but that's what I think. First off, man, man, a man and a wife become one when they get married, right? But... In that relationship, there's still certain roles. Men and women have different roles. I'm a father to Lincoln, I'm a mother to Lincoln. Melissa is his mother. I am the father, I have a different role. All right? And the elders, I can hear my son crying. Funny <laughs> 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 uh, In the role of elder, they're operating as a somewhat of a father to that local congregation. But that, to me, means that that person's spouse would be operating as a mother. And I 
think I see that in, in the people we want to bring on as elders. Their wives have this heart for the people in the church, often in very different ways than the men do. They care about different things. Things are really important. They're going to bring up different thoughts and opinions than the men might. And so we want those women to have a sort of motherly um, um, love for the congregation, similar to how we would want the elders of the church to have a fatherly love for the local congregation. And so I, I would say that the, the man is the pastor or the elder, similar you know, the role of a father, right? So I would never say Melissa could be Lincoln's father. That's ridiculous. I'm his father, right? And that's not just genetics or, or, or natural or physical. I'm talking about spiritual even. I'm, I am a Lincoln's father. I'm there to teach him certain things and help him grow up. And ultimately, of course, God is his ultimate father. But I would say that we have different roles within the family and within the local congregation, the local family. The elders operate sort of in um, a way of loving and building up. And I believe those women, if those men are married, would operate in a motherly way also leading the church. That's my speculation. Because you, you see oftentimes in scripture, it relates the um, church leadership and uses the same words for church leadership as it does for the family dynamic. And so I think that though the man is the pastor or the elder, I absolutely believe those spouses are very influential and important. And when we're looking at a man, his wife can get him disqualified. He may be spiritually mature, but if the wife is not, he cannot become an elder or a pastor because they mo- must both be spiritually mature, have the same desires, both be involved in discipleship. We're looking for, you know, Aquila and Priscilla. We're looking for teams who operate together and use their gifts together to complement each other and respect and love one another and work together in that role. Does that make sense? That's where we stand on that as a church. Okay. So Paul gets into some even more difficult stuff. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, we're, going to talk, we're going to talk here about Eve being deceived. 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So that's just a fact. Like that's that's a, that's what happened. <laughs> right? That is what happened. Eve was the one who was deceived. But you know what? The fault was put on Adam because he didn't believe his wife's law. We say the sin of Adam. Sin came into this world because of Adam. Who ate the fruit first? Eve did. But the blame fell on Adam. Who was deceived first? Eve did. Eve was. But it's still the sin of Adam. Adam was the one who gets the blame. So, that being said, um, I don't know. It's like it seems to. He seems to be saying that women may be more easily deceived when it comes to certain um, doctrinal issues, and that is the really the view most commentary commentaries take. And the view that uh, even some of the guys I really respect take. But I, I heard it put this way, and I thought it was pretty interesting. It said he said that women generally are much more spiritually attentive, and you see women oftentimes um, in the role um, or practicing the gifts of prophecy, work knowledge, 
um, and things like that in the church. But because of that spiritual sensitivity comes with both a strength and a weakness. They're more spiritually sensitive. They, they tend to see things that, that men don't see. They, see that they seem to notice things going on within the congregation that men don't seem to see. But that also makes them easier um, to be deceived. Whereas men can oftentimes, not all men, but oftentimes stay more grounded on those, those core doctrines and hold the church grounded, whereas women may struggle to do so. That is the view that most people take. Some take the view that this is part of the punishment for women in sin is that they couldn't be these type of leaders um, because of the fall of Eve. So those are two of the main views. One, that it isn't that women are weaker. It's just part of the fall, like childbearing and things like that. Women um, just simply can't because of the fall. And others would say that there's a spiritual sensitivity that makes women more prone to deception, but makes them also stronger in other areas. You can pick which one you like. <laughs> I probably would lean towards the more spiritually sensitive um, part. That's what I've noticed. Oftentimes, uh, I've noticed that women pick up things spiritually that I, I've noticed men don't. But men tend to hold these core doctrines much more serious and not um, aren't willing to consider um, some of the sketchier stuff that are brought into churches. That's been my experience. Um, I don't I don't know for sure. It could go either way on this text. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. Like I said, this is an open-handed doctrine. We may operate a certain way as a church. But, you know, if you disagree with us on some of the stuff, that's fine. We're united in getting the gospel out there. Does that make sense? Okay. The last and most difficult one. 1 Timothy 2.15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There are a lot of views on this one. <laughs> okay, let me tell you what it is absolutely not. This is absolutely not saying that women who don't have kids will go to hell. <laughs> this is absolutely not what this is saying. Because that would have to contradict the entire of scripture. <laughs> okay? It is not saying that. No serious theologian or uh, pastor or uh, any of those guys teach that. It's just not one to consider. So if that's what you read there, uh, you can just disregard that thought altogether. <laughs> okay, another view is that, and we also do not believe this one, but there are churches that would, would believe this, that if women are continuing in faith, love, and holiness, and self-control, they're good, godly women, they won't die in childbearing. Because at this time, and even up to about 100 years ago, the most common form of death for a woman was to die during childbirth. Um, it's because of our medical advancements and things like that that women don't die um, giving birth as often as they used to. So this would have been how many of these women would have died. They would have died giving birth to a child. And so some would say, if they're good godly women, God will save them from that sort of death. Um, I do not believe that's what this is teaching whatsoever. I believe what the Bible says, which is that, you know, the rain falls on the heads of the righteous and the unrighteous. Hurricane Harvey hit righteous and unrighteous, repentant and non-repentant, Christians and unbelievers. They hit everybody, right? I believe that God allows pain to happen to everyone, sometimes to Christians even more. 
not believe that this is saying that good godly women will die in childbirth. That would sort of be a prosperity view of scripture, which we do not take. Okay, another one that I thought was pretty interesting, okay? Uh, and I, I considered a little bit because it doesn't seem like any theologian or pastor I, I checked on this knew what it was. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's consider all of them. But it says, despite, um, so really, it's despite having children that they'll still be saved, <laughs> right? Because the word for child rearing could also be child rearing. And yes, like, children will truly bring a lot of sanctification in your life. You learn a lot about your selfishness and lack of patience and things like that by having a child. And so some say, well, it's, it's, if they continue in love and steadfastness and all that, even being how difficult childbearing and rearing is, they'll still be saved because they won't abandon God for giving them this demon child. <laughs> Which is a very interesting view of that. Because children are very difficult. And uh, they certainly test their mothers. Like, they really love to test their mother's patience and love. Don't they, Melissa? Doesn't he? I I still, even though that's one that I think many commentaries might, might lean towards, it's not what I think it is. Um, oh, there's another one that I don't like either. It's saying that instead of women trying to aspire to the role of an elder or uh, leader in the church, um, they should instead just embrace the role of motherhood. <laughs> but that's not what I think either. All right, you guys ready for the one I think it is? Yeah. All right, one thing you should know about me is anywhere I can see Jesus in the Bible, I see it. Anywhere I can see Jesus in the Bible, I see it. He's talking about Eve. In Genesis 3, after the fall, Jesus promises that there would be one who comes from Eve, a child who comes from Eve, down the line, descendants, who would save the world, who would crush the head of the serpent. Okay? And he just referenced Eve. Then he says this weird verse about childbearing. I think he is talking about um, Christ coming from the lineage of Eve, the one who would save the world. And then he says it if, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Um, there are many, many scriptures that say you're saved by the, the blood of Christ and believing in him, but you must continue in the faith. You must hold fast. You must keep going. So this reminds me of all the portions of scripture where Paul says that you're saved through Christ and this and that, but hold on to Jesus. Hold on. Hold fast. Stick with him. Don't abandon him. Follow him. And so I, I believe that this um, verse here is, in a very confusing way at first glance, talking about Jesus coming from me and being the salvation of the world, and that we must continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. He's addressing women specifically in this passage, but I believe, obviously, in general, we all must continue in faith and love and self-control and holiness as we're following Jesus. We must continue in that. We can't abandon Christ. So, when it comes to this whole topic of men and women in ministry, obviously, as I said before, there are many views, and it's a secondary doctrine. And so, um, 
it's okay if you don't agree with everything that I just taught. But listen, um, I thought this was really beautiful. This was written by Matthew Henry. It says, Eve was made not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved. I thought that was, that was a beautiful view of really the husband and wife dynamic, which I believe we've also seen played out in the election church leadership. Is that when men and women are absolutely equal, but they have different strengths and weaknesses that I think are very obvious, and to try to ignore them is a little bit silly because they're just so obvious. Now, that's not to say that um, you know every woman is the same and every man is the same. Obviously, it's somewhat of a generalization. But I really do believe that generally men are the protectors and, and women are more sensitive and, and, and even more, sometimes more patient and loving. Um, you, you'll see in most and I's relationship, um, I'm a little more hard on like, well, they did this, so, you know? And Melissa was like, no, like more grace and love. <laughs> and she was constantly reminding me of that. And that's our, our relationship. Um, and I think you do see that played out generally in ministry and generally in um, men and women's spiritual roles. So, I hope that you guys uh, would know from, for, for our church here at Austin Chapel, we have a very, very high view of God's word. And we have a very, very high view of women. And though we believe men and women are different in some ways, we absolutely believe that women should excel and be empowered here at this church. And I, I, I think because of the background that has often been in the church, women feel uh, a bit pushed down in spiritual gifts or in opportunities or in leadership. And I, I do believe certain roles might be reserved for men, um, but those wives would be very influential that are next to those men. And I, I, I think that just because some some areas maybe are, are more for the, the role of a man, I think that women might feel like, well, then I can't do anything but like kids in this year or something. <laughs> you know? And that's just not the case. Like the Great Commission and all of the spiritual gifts and all of the commands in Scripture were given to men and women both. That we would serve and love and, and, and pray for one another and encourage one another and exhort one another and disciple one another. Like these are all for men and women. Like I want women to feel empowered in this church. And if you feel you have certain spiritual gifts, we want you to grow in those spiritual gifts. Amen? And so, I would say also, these kind of dynamics here that he talks about, I would say again, applies to the house of God. It applies to the church. And so, I had no problem with a, a woman president or a woman manager or a woman CEO, CEO right? So this, this applies to simply the spiritual house of God. It doesn't apply to any sort of those of those other roles within society. Um, and I don't think we're trying to try to enforce this upon society in any way. I think women can, can excel in all of those areas of business and politics and wherever they want to. Um, so... 
We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and all of this has been made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. And here at Austin Chapel, we, more than anything else, we love Jesus and want people to know about Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so the secondary issue, it would be, it would be so sad if it divided our church. When we are to be united in the calling that we have to let the world know, to let Austin know how much Jesus loves them. And that he shed his blood for them. And that he died and rose again so that they could have a truly new life. And have eternal life even in heaven. In perfect relationship with him. That's what we are all about here. I think that end of that text there, he brings it back to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who frees us from sin. Today we'll be partaking of communion here uh, during worship. And communion was instituted by Christ before he, it was the night before he was crucified. In Luke 22, 19, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is in is the new covenant in my blood. So he gives them the bread and the cup which represents his body which is broken and his blood which has been poured out for us. And so we partake of communion, remembering the work that Christ has done. <laughs> We <laughs> find the <laughs> uh, Remembering the work that he has done, um, and so we partake of communion as a church, and we do believe that communion is to be practiced um, by those who believe in the work of Jesus Christ, those who have professed that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you're like, you know, you, you've been.